Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. It's Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're fortunate enough to be joined by Patrick Wood, who is going, who I just saw his interview with uh, the Defender, the Children's Health Defense. And uh, it was really, we're going to put a copy of that video in this, in, in this page that we're writing. So I would encourage you to watch that one first, because that gives you a really good background of Patrick and his work. Uh, even though I've interviewed him before, you know, that contest's not readily available, so we're going to make it easy for you. And this is this is really current. It was good. And then, the, and I saw that video, actually, last night as we were recording this, and I thought, gosh, it tied in so well with a, an interview I did earlier this week with Matthias Desmond, which is not going to be aired for a few more weeks. So Patrick's interview is going to come up first, but this really is the issue of the day. And we've, there's not many people talking about it, probably because not many people understand it and the potential implications. Matthias has a really good handle on it. You're going to really enjoy the interview. And he wrote a book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And um, Patrick has done decades of work on technocracy. So um, I'm sure most of you have heard of that before, but uh, Patrick could probably give a little history of of that. And the, one of the motivating factors for me, we're going to get into some of the projections, which I think the most interesting component, but one of the most motivating, the, the interesting perspectives is to differentiate or reconcile the differences between totalitarianism and technocracy, because it's, you know, they're two different entities, but they're so similar. So I think there's not many people, people better qualified than Patrick to help enlighten us in that. So welcome with that long introduction. And thank you for joining us today. That's great. I love to talk about this. And uh, I wish there was something else to talk about. But uh, this is it. This is the topic of the day. This is what people need to know and understand. And if we're going to fight back against this enemy, which previously has pretty much been unseen, we must recognize who we're dealing with, period. We cannot deal, we cannot provide any defense or offense to push back on this unless we know who the enemy really is and what what they're thinking what's in their head yeah and you've been studying this for a long time and you actually in, in that our interview from the uh, the defender you go into how you understood this very early on like we did too and we recognized it immediately because we were alert we weren't we had our critical thinking skills involved and right. you knew it like that first month or two of January 20 of 2020. So you weren't surprised by this at all. No, I wasn't. And you know, that only because I had been following the uh, climate uh, change, global warming alarmism for a long time, that's been part of the wheelhouse for technocracy embedded in the United Nations is sustainable development, but climate change, global warming has been used as the, the fear producing you know, fear mongering, fear porn, whatever to drive people insane, to make them willing to accept sustainable development as the answer to all the world's problems. And so when I saw the same people that were promoting climate alarmism jump track 
over onto the COVID uh, train, I knew that this something was up immediately. It, I didn't have to know anything about COVID. Nothing. I didn't have to know anything about viruses necessarily. But I saw the people who were who were pushing it all of a sudden, and I and I realized that the um, uh, the crack computer models that were being used to tell us that we're all going to die. And, you know, I can remember Al, what Al Gore said, the seas are going to rise and the polar ice caps are going to melt. That never happened. But all these predictions come rolling out of these, com these crazy computer models that are pretty much rigged to say whatever you wanted to say. Um, they use the same techniques on the pandemic to get it kick-started. And then, of course, as some of the details began to unfold from there, you know, the, the rest of it became really, really clear. And here we are today, two years later. And I, I claimed at the time, I said, this is technocracy's coup d'etat, that they're, they're finally making their, their major global move mm -hmm. to do yeah. what they said they were going to do for a long time. But now they're actually putting shoe leather to it and they're making it happen. So I called it a coup d'etat early on. Yeah, yeah, you, you definitely caught it early. So in your interview with the Defender, you quoted your associate and co-writer of many books, Anthony Sutton, who is a major influence for you, certainly, and yes. an early researcher in this and technocracy. Uh, and you quoted him as saying that only 2% of people have critical thinking skills or can think. 8% of people think they can think. The rest of them are not think at all, or something like that. Yeah, 90% would rather die than think. Oh, that was it. 90% would rather die. That was really good. I just couldn't recall it. So, but it's interesting because Mateus comes up with something similar. And I was kind of astonished because I didn't think the number was so low. But his assertion is that only 10%, only one out of 10 people are not, or still have retained their critical thinking skills. They can think. 30% are completely hypnotized, completely hypnotized, so much so that they or someone they love dearly can get the jab, die within hours or a few days, and believe that the, 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 it was absolutely unrelated to that jab. Right. That's how deeply they're, they're, they're hypnotized. Yep. It's just shocking when you look at it, because you know if they, if they had their critical thinking skills, it would be so obvious, but they don't. They lost it. And then the other 60%, so, you know, is, is somewhere in the middle, they can sway either way. But it's a small group of people that we're speaking to, Patrick. Yes, it is. And it's, that's, it's getting bigger, I have to say, because people that are in that middle group, the fence sitters, I call them, I think maybe he refers to them a little bit differently, but mm -hmm. people kind of have their one toe on this side and the other toe on the other side. They, they I don't know what they think. You know, one day they'll say one thing, next day they'll say something else most of the people shaking out of that group are falling our way, not mm -hmm. the other way. And this is a good thing. You know, this, this, this only comes because um, those people that are, that finally kind of wake up to what's going on, they feel the hand in their back pocket, right? Mm -hmm. They feel the damage to their bodies. Uh, people like Eric Clapton, for instance, uh, just mm -hmm. a good example. Uh, who's always been kind of a rebel. I, I can't, I don't, I wouldn't want to put him in the, you know, total mass formation camp, but um, he succumbed to taking a, a shot initially. And I think he's been boost, got boosted after that, but it paralyzed his hands. Now, if, if people don't know who Clapton is, he's one of the, arguably, I think one of the best guitarists on the planet. 
And he's 76 years old now. He unfortunately just got COVID. He's vaccinated, fully vaxxed, but he got COVID anyway. Um, but he, uh, he lost, his hands were paralyzed and scared the pants off of him. You can imagine, the guy's, his whole life is wrapped up in his hands. <laughs> And all of a sudden, he can't play. He, he figured, maybe I'll never play. What well, You know, in that state, you do some thinking, right? And he did some thinking. <laughs> he said, something's really wrong here. And um, people like that, that, that are personally impacted, they, they really start to change their worldview when they realize, hey, man, I'm, I'm hurting now. It's not my neighbor, not the guy down the street. It's me. And so some of those people are shaken out. This, this is finally a good thing. Is it? Too late, too little. I don't know, but I'm well, glad to see it happen. That's what Matthias says: is that the, those of us who are in the ten percent really need to express our voices. Yes. Uh, and interestingly, he's convinced that it's better done in person rather than virtually. I and agree. We can we can take a sidestep because you are in the middle as we're recording this of a tour. Yes. Of, a live tour. So why don't you tell us a little about that tour and and what your experience has been with that. Yes, and I fully identify with what Matthias is saying about meeting in person is different than meeting on Zoom like we are right now. This is really good, but we would have a completely different dynamic if we were meeting in person. You know, we could see each other in 3D, we could talk, we could touch, you know, whatever, you could hear the vibration of our voices. Um, in, in, in the Zoom video, of course, you're losing half the frequency that you would have if we were in person. So there's lots of differences. Uh, but Desmond has it right on that. There's there, we need to reconnect with other humans physically, personally, and get away from all the electronic communications and stuff and just sit down with people across the table and talk to them. Um, but having said that, I, we have been involved in this Crimes Against Humanity tour across the nation, and there's just four of us who have prepared a message. It's a one-day message on stage. And Who, who are the other three? Well, um, <clears throat> there, there's... Um, I'll just give it an order of presentation, me first in the morning to set the stage for globalization and what's happening on the global mm -hmm. stage. Uh, uh, Dr. Judy Mikovits is going, usually goes next. And, um, you know, She's she brings her eyewitness testimony to yes. uh, what happened with, you know, Anthony Fauci and her over the years and stuff. It's very germane right now. And uh, then uh, uh, Dr. Reiner Fulmish, the international lawyer who has orchestrated the, um, uh, the Corona Investigative Committee as well as the grand jury of public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, he's interviewed uh, hundreds of hours now on, on tape of people, experts from all over the planet. I mean, it's really amazing. Um, and then lastly, um, uh, Dr. Richard Fleming um, mm. of, of Dallas, who is, uh, you know, he's not only a scientist and a doctor, but he's also a lawyer. So he's got quite an interesting mix of skills. I don't know how long he went to school for all that, but <laughs> yeah, that was many years. He was well past 30 when he finished his. his uh, I can't imagine, uh, I, but I'll tell you, he's got a lot to say. And so yeah. the four smart of us guy. are smart. I've interviewed him for he's a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. So the four of us are giving a joint presentation on kind of turning the audience into a grand jury. Okay. You decide now we'll give you the evidence on, on what we have discovered vis-a-vis uh, -vis crimes against humanity. And that term spills out of the Nuremberg Code, by the way, um, most generally. Um, you know, the, the actors that have been involved with uh, the, the great pandemic that we've had in the last two years, um, 
we believe that there is a great case to be made that indeed crimes against humanity have been committed in the same context and sense that they were discovered at the Nuremberg trials that produced the Nuremberg Code, which is now embedded in every nation on earth and their legal system and in our country and every state as well. It's interesting to find out. Uh, medical experimentation is verboten, period. And yet it has happened anyway with no informed consent along the way and, you know, shots going into the arm and stuff happening and people getting sick and dying and, you know, you know, the old drill, what went wrong. Uh, so we're presenting this case to the American public in person. And, and I will say the dynamic of talking to a live audience today is a, is a breath of fresh air for me personally. I think everybody else would say the same thing. How many people are at your events? And, and, it's and been how many I know it's been it's, it's been horrible. <laughs> no, I mean horrible. Well, the the, the attendance has just been uh, in the tank. We expected, really? we had hoped there would be fifteen hundred to two thousand people at each event. Yeah, yeah. But it hasn't turned out that way. We've had, uh, you know, we've had a couple hundred typically, and that's probably going to increase as we go on. Mm-hmm. But uh, it has it has underperformed our expectations at this point. But nevertheless, I, I will say this, the quality of people who have been there has mm-hmm. been astounding. And we've made some great connections, um, you know, made some great new contacts and stuff with people that we would not have otherwise met. <laughs> um, and word is getting out that, uh, you know, that this is serious business right now. And of course, we're competing with all these other things going on in society right now, you know, the mm-hmm. The, 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 the economy is about ready to roll into recession. You know, you've got the, the stock market's about ready to fall into a bear market officially. Um, lots of volatility everywhere you look. And still there's a lot of uncertainty about our masks coming back. And, you know, it's COVID the whole wave coming back at us again. Are they going to give it to us again? Uh, you so, know, we're competing with all that too. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I wanted to dive into that. Uh, aspect now because you mentioned it on your other interview too in that you warn people and i and i share these feelings deeply that agree with you that this is a low it is not over it, yes. it is it is not getting better and it is never never going back to the way it was we don't want it to go back that way because that's what precipitated this so i think it's a good point to Give us your insights from studying this thing for three decades and understanding the players and what their long-term strategies are as to what you think some of the next steps are. And I, I, I know part of it is this digital identification of individuals, which started with the Vax passport, which kind of failed somewhat, but still set the stage for it, which is going to progress into digital IDs. It's just going to then be the ultimate destruction of humanity, which is the central bank digital currencies and CBDCs, which is coming. Almost every central bank is going to implement them within, I think, three years, maybe five at the most, probably three to four. So we've got what appears to be disaster coming towards us like a freight train. And my guess is, and I suspect you'll agree that the past two years is going to seem like a picnic compared to what's coming. Yeah. This is the nature of revolution. Um, if if my hypothesis is true that that uh, January 2020 was the coup d'état that started this war mm-hmm. in earnest, the hot war, if you will, versus just mm-hmm. kind of the 
leading up to it and everything. Lots of lots of bad stuff happened from 9-11 through 2020 mm-hmm. that we could point to and say, well, it looked like, kind of like, you know, somebody's orchestrating this, obviously. But man, it it went into a hot war, literally, uh, globally as well, mm-hmm. on January 2020. Revolutions never stop with one attack. That's that's obvious, almost, I'm sure, self-evident. And, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but... Who, who is instigating this revolution? Is it the global cabal, the tyranny that's doing this? I mean, it's clearly not the, the populace. Because no, normally when you think of revolution, you think of the American Revolution. So, you know, the patriots went and overthrew the right. British tyranny. But this is not, this is the reverse. It, it is. What, what we have uh, in, in kind of the, the clearest term, maybe to get across quickly, we have what's going on called the, re- the Great Reset mm-hmm. of the planet. And the Great Reset that has become a catchphrase, I mean, everybody's kind of talking about it. Most people don't have a clue what it means yet, but it's promoted by the World Economic Forum, which is tightly interlinked and coupled with the United Nations. Um, this, this elite group of people represent uh, in mix all of the people that were originally in the Trilateral Commission back in the 1970s, same kinds of people, yeah. same agenda to you know, transform the world into their vision uh, the way they think things ought to be. These are the people that have orchestrated this whole thing, and they're the ones that are pushing it right now. Um, so it's easy to identify um, most of the people involved in this. You could, you, can, you could look at the Klaus Schwab's and the Bill Gates and you know, the thousand companies that, that belong to the World Economic Forum. Uh, they all have CEOs, board members, et cetera, that are part of the World Economic Forum. It's pretty easy to identify them today. So. Um, the the idea that, that is of the Great Reset is complete transformation of society and the individuals that live in the society. The World Economic Forum is bold talking about both. They talk about this, this technocratic uh, takeover on one hand that reforms society, that is the structures of society, the, the institutions. But it all, they also talk at the same time about the, uh, the restructuring of humanity itself. That is the merging of technology with human condition, with the flesh, the, the changing of genetic code, um, you know, hum, humans 2.0, humanity 2.0, H plus is another term that's used. Um, this is mad scientist type of stuff, Joe. It's, just, it's like to the average guy in the street who's never been exposed to this. I mean, you know, are we talking like war of the worlds or something from? You know, this that appeared on the radio back in the 30s or 40s, and everybody freaked out. It's hard to get your head around how how evil this whole thing is, and it's all uninvited. Nobody asked for it. Mm -hmm. They just did it. They have just done it, and it didn't just happen. That's another thing that's really important to understand. It didn't just come out of the blue and or fall out of the sky from outer space. This has been in the works for a very long time. It's indeed. So it's interesting you say, mention that the, well, aside from the fact that it's been planned, uh, and when you say a long time, and that, that's somewhat nebulous term, of course, and, but it's at well, least decades, right? Yeah, at it, least it, decades, it will. and maybe I, longer. Yes, I'll, I'll take you back um, purposely and intentionally here. I'll take you back to 1992. Mm-hmm. This, is, this was such an important discovery for me. <clears throat> um, in 1992, you remember, was the year that uh, Agenda 21 was uh, created at Rio de Janeiro. That was the 
the, the genesis of sustainable development. That's where that doctrine was openly described. And the Agenda 21 and the Biodiversity Convention that took place at the same time was the agenda for the 21st century. And it was uh, foundational in the sense that it laid out all kinds of stuff that's happening today. It's just, you know, nobody really paid attention. And of course, everybody called it a conspiracy theory along the way. If you mentioned Agenda 21 10 years ago, you're definitely wearing a tinfoil hat. You know, nobody would listen to you. Oh, it's crazy talk. But going back to that day today, in, in light of what's happened here now, there was a great book that was released in 1994 called The Earth Brokers. And the two authors were scholars. They were also the original environmental crowd. Um, they weren't on our side necessarily at all, but they were, uh, they went to agenda to, to the Rio conference in good faith, figuring that there was going to be some negotiation to, to dial back the development that was messing with the third world and, and, you know, try to get the planet back together. And um, so they went hoping to turn some things around. And they came away from the Agenda 21 conference completely disillusioned. And they wrote a book called The Earth Brokers in 1994, two years later. And in that book, they criticized the Agenda 21 process. And uh, they, they started out by saying things, something like this. Um, we argue that unsaid, that's the United Nations Conference on Economic Development. We argue that unsaid has boosted precisely the type of industrial development that is destructive for the environment, the planet, and its inhabitants. We see how, as a result of unsaid, the rich will get richer, the poor poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. What can we say but amen to that? You know, here we are today. It's exactly what's happened. But they went on and talked about the Biodiversity Convention, which I said ran in parallel with the Gen 21 conference. Same conference, same people, same buildings. It's just two different thought tracks. They wrote about the Biodiversity Convention, which has become incredibly important today to the United Nations. They said the convention implicitly equates the diversity of life, that is animals and plants, to the diversity of genetic codes. By doing so, diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate. It promotes biotechnology as being essential for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity. So they redefined the term biodiversity for one. But they went on and said the main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention is the issue of ownership and control over biological diversity. The major concern was protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries. That was their assessment, to which today we can say, bingo. That is exactly what happened back then. And this is exactly the expression today that we see of the genetic takeover of life on planet Earth. They've gotten the seeds, they've gotten the plants, they've gotten the animals. Um, and now you have people like uh, the, the chief medical officer of Moderna, uh, Tal Zax is his name, never met him, but I don't know that I want to either. But he said, and this was on their website at one point, I think they've taken it down since, he said, this is Moderna, the, the prime maker and developer of the AMP messenger RNA shot. We are actually hacking the software, software of life, he says. We think about it as an operating system. So if you could actually change that, if you could introduce a line of code or change a line of code, 
it turns out it has profound implications for everything. No kidding. You know, you look at this in the whole scope of things. From 92 on, all the stuff that's happened, the legislation is protected and isolated, the big pharma industry and stuff. These, these crazy people were on the loose back then. And they pulled kind of the pre-coup, <laughs> if you call it that. They laid the groundwork for the coup in 1992, protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotech industries. And that's what we have today, companies like Moderna making messenger RNA injections that meddle with the human condition. This has never happened before. All yeah. other species, everything else has happened, but now the genetic, the genetic makeup of mankind is in question. But the, 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 the historical or the origins of this movement goes back far further than that. I mean, in the seventies, you got the Trilateral Commission and then yes. you talk about in your books and, and your presentations of how it goes back and even into the thirties. Absolutely. The origins in the United States and Canada. Yeah. And you actually, you, you share how you did some interesting reviews because most of the, the correspondence occurring in the 30s was by handwritten letters on microfilm that you eventually yeah. dug up and read and digested and kind of understood what they were doing. Yes, it's an, it, why don't you just share that? Because, I mean, you talk about the other one where you missed this because these the originators of the technocracy movements in the 30s got in some type of argument with the Hearst newspaper empire, which was the, yeah. the major empire yeah. for media yeah. back then. It was the media. So because of that, they forbade any of the writers to talk about them. So they kind of got buried for like a few decades. It did. And that's exactly right. And what happened was um, uh, Howard Scott, who happened to be one of the co-founders of Technocracy Inc., but he was also kind of the leader of the group at Columbia University when, when it was housed there at, at Columbia in 1932. And he had promoted himself as being a certified engineer and you know, kind of one of the intellectual guys that would fit into Columbia University. He wasn't from Columbia, but he was kind of heading the movement there at Columbia. Uh, it was discovered while, they, while there that he was a complete fraud. He, he had no engineering degree at all. He was just a blowhard. He's a promoter, basically, a con man. And um, Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of Columbia, who was a big name dropper and a big globalist in his, in his own right, he flipped out. He just freaked. And he drop kicked him out of uh, Columbia, just summarily, out of here. Don't ever come back. <laughs> they just, and they occupied half the basement at Hamilton Hall at the time. So it was no easy thing to get them all out. But he said, you're just take a march right now you're out of here well by the same token howard scott was out working the media like crazy and he worked the hearst empire to get articles about technocracy published all across the country and when randolph hearst discovered as butler did that he had been taken for a ride and that the his media empire had been manipulated he freaked out and he sent out a memo actual it, you know, telegram type memo. He sent out a memo to every uh, every newspaper in the country. Said, if you ever, if anybody ever mentions technocracy again, you're fired. <laughs> well, I took care of that. Mm -hmm. The history books simply didn't have anything. When you know, history has a 25 year lag typically, 
So historians don't go back and analyze stuff from last year to write in history books. They go back 25 years and they look around and they read the newspaper articles and whatever and try and figure out what happened. And that's how they write history. Well, there's this huge hole on the technocracy movement because it just got dropped out all of a sudden. There's no newspaper articles. It's just like they disappeared in thin air. Um, the people at Columbia were not talking about it anymore. The, the, the big high, uh, highly credentialed uh, science and engineers at Columbia who were crowing about technocracy the year before, now all of a sudden would not dare mention the word for love nor money. <laughs> and so there was no articles on them and they, they produced no more papers or anything. It's just gone. Yeah, it's, it so, sounds like the equivalent of vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in the 21st century. It does. <laughs> I know. So anyway, it was no surprise uh, in a way that, that the technocracy never never hit the American history books. Mm -hmm. Although when I did go back to look specifically, when, when I finally got an, a bead, yes, it was real. Yes, it was at Columbia and so on. It wasn't too difficult to break it down to figure out what, what happened. And then we discovered an archive, um, a major university archive at University of Edmonton in Alberta. Uh, where all of the leaders of the Canadian movement uh, had combined their papers in the 90s and took them to the University of um, uh, Alberta and at Edmonton and donated the papers to an archive. And they, they boxed them all up and acid-free boxes and whatever they do and archival studies. And they put them in the, in the warehouse. And they sat there for years and years and years until they got published on the internet at the catalog. We discovered it. And thought, dang, <laughs> that looks really hot. interesting. That's hot. So I, I, my wife and I just hopped in our car and we drove right up <laughs> to, through uh, to Edmonton. Uh, the weather was terrible, but uh, we had to do it and spent a whole week there as they brought out cart after cart after cart for us to go through and sift through and make photocopies and everything else of the original documents. And we could break it down pretty good after that, what, what really was going on. Yeah, so you, you have an interesting, relatively unique perspective on the origins of this whole movement towards global tyranny. So what I'd like to diverge now is what I mentioned initially that, that prompted the, the, the request to connect with you is to help us understand the similarities and perhaps differences of, of uh, totalitarianism and technocracy because they are, it appears to be two different components, but maybe not. So, I mean, you're the expert. So what, what's your take on it? Well, <clears throat> there, it's fair to say that the expression of technocracy will appear as totalitarianism mm. in this sense. Um, the control over you and I will not be by a dictator issuing a press release mm -hmm. saying, if you cross this line, we'll execute you sort of thing. That's the way dictators have worked in the past, I suppose. They make a proclamation and then they enforce it with their, their goons, their goon squads. The way things are going to be controlled today is through technology, through algorithm. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important difference. There, there's not people behind it that you can look at and blame or get your hands around their neck and say, don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. The algorithm now can be, you know, we can look at it in terms of a Google 
some of the social media censorships going on, social credit scoring system in China, which is now spread to many parts of Europe, but it's coming here as well. Um, <clears throat> the so-called artificial intelligence boom has created the possibility of controlling people by algorithm rather than by political dictate. Mm. There has been an, uh, a battle between technocrats and governments ever since technocracy started. They hated, back in that day, they hated government. They wanted to get rid of government. Mm. There is still that propensity today. You see it at the World Economic Forum. You see it at the United Nations. Um, they want to dissolve the national governments of the world. And historically, <clears throat> fascism and con communism have been instituted by national governments, right? Just like mm -hmm. Germany, Russia, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, these entities are on the hit list for technocracy. Um, mm. We saw this, by the way, just recently, uh, there was a conference in Dubai. It was called the, Glo I think the Global Governance Conference or something like that. It was partly by the, put on by the United Nations. And there were a bunch of uh, financial mucky mucks there. And, and there was one lady in particular, I think her name was Pippa Malgram. She's from uh, American, but she's in Great Britain. And she uh, does financial wealth management services for the ultra rich. Uh, you don't get her phone phone number and dial her up and say, I want to buy some stock. <laughs> That's not the way it is. But she she gave a little talk and she was the one that talked about the destruction of the fiat currency system. Mm -hmm. And she said, when it happens, there's simply going to be a changeover. All the fiat currencies are going to go and there's going to be an implementation of digital currency. But she also made point in, in that same little talk that she gave in a panel that the nations of the world, the nation state structures of the world are declining rapidly now. And, you know, they, they tend to measure this in terms of say, well, democracy, you know, but mm -hmm. that's not, that's not really an accurate barometer to just say, well, democracy is declining. Therefore the nation state is declining. I mean, you could have said that about, about Russia and, you know, in 1918 too, and it ended up in being, you know, horrible, oppressive dictatorship. But the antipathy that, that I saw in her voice, that she was just reflecting what she saw, I guess, that the nation states are the target of destruction. They must go. And if you look at Europe right now, it's pretty easy to understand how this happened in Europe. You see all the countries of Europe, just like you did 100 years ago. You see Switzerland, you see Germany, look at a map, you see Germany, you see you know, Finland, et cetera. But because of the EU, the nation states themselves have virtually no power to do anything anymore. They can't make any decisions that are substantive for their country. They're all made at the, level, at the EU level. That's why a lot of people over in Europe call the EU a technocracy. They're a bunch of technocrat elites. You know, they're unelected. They're unaccountable. Nobody can get to them. And they're making decisions for everybody else. So you can say, well, the nation states are still there, but they've been stripped of their power. They can't do anything anymore. They can just make some social decisions about themselves. Basically, that's it. So we see the nation states of the world being reduced in power. And we see the, the technocrat elite being elevated in power, where you have companies like Google, for instance, now, 
are often operating in the affairs of people within those states with more power than the state has itself. <laughs> this is the flip-flop. This is a very important distinction to make, I think, because these are not nation states. These, these new actors are not nation states. The Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, et cetera, and, you know, all the big corporate giants and stuff, these are, these are actors of a different sort altogether. They're, they cannot be compared to anything that nation states have done in the past, mm -hmm. like produce fascism or communism or socialism. This yeah. is altogether different. So that helps a lot. Uh, because it's quite obvious after your explanation that totalitarianism is actually an outgrowth of technocracy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It will so feel that way. It'll feel like totalitarianism. Yeah. And, and in support of what you just said, you know, that's it's going on right now as we speak is that the World Health Organization has put out this request or petition, or I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but the governance for control of the entire global response to any future pandemic, that they have the authority to define what the pandemic is. Like they, they haven't used, they haven't perverted the definition at least a few times since they've been involved. So, but they, but it's under their complete control of what the definition is of what a pandemic is. And, the, and they, they control what the response is, not any sovereign, sovereign nation. Uh, I don't, you know, from what it appears in my review, and the president doesn't have the authority to sign this. It has to be ratified by two thirds of the Senate, which seems to be unlikely. But who knows what, how they can pervert the, the legal system to make this and to enact this mm. craziness. But it seems that's the way that's that's the, the, the current day application of what you just said. That's right. Removal it's, of the sovereign states. It's very it's very clever how they're going to do this. I'm I'm sure I don't know all the details yet, but. They have ways to get stuff through different countries because they mm -hmm. want everybody on board. They want they call it being inclusive. They want everybody on the same page. Um, when 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 we went had the uh, the climate um, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, for instance, that was that was framed mm -hmm. as a as a treaty to everybody else in the world. It was framed to us as an agreement. An agreement mm -hmm. in the United States only needs fifty percent passage in the Senate, not two thirds. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So, you know, that lowered the barrier right there and it, it makes it almost guaranteed it's going to pass. But nevertheless, there was a trigger uh, put into the treaty, into the treaty part of it, where if a certain percentage of nations signed the agreement, then it would become binding for everyone. So President Obama went to China and he signed the agreement in China with the Chinese premier. And it was enough, it, it was enough to, to pull, to, to, uh, trigger you know, the uh, the binding part of the Paris Climate Agreement on everybody in the world. This is very sneaky. Nobody saw that coming. And I expect that we'll be surprised by how they implement this. But you know what their objective is, obviously, is to control everything. Yeah. And if you look at it in the context of what we talked about initially, about the takeover genetic material on Earth, mm -hmm. The, this is the dangerous payload that we face. It's not just the, the governance part of it. It's not just the scientific <clears throat> dictatorship part of it, where people now can be manipulated and doing things they don't want to do. But we're talking, about, we're talking about the direct takeover of the human genome. <laughs> this is a level, this is an order of magnitude above the problems that we're talking about with global governance. 
the yeah. takeover of the human genome. This this is this is an incredible thing because that means potentially that our genome of humanity could be changed. Well, will be. It's inevitable. We have the technology yeah. through CRISPR to to initiate that now. I mean, yes. there's no question about it. But I still think it's down the road. And what I want to diverge now is because I think that is a long-term problem. It certainly should be on the radar. But my guess, my suspicion is that things are going to get, are going to be much, much worse before they are able to implement that, that level. They're just not going to have the time to do it because it's going to take years. So on, on that note, Mateus was really clear in making the different in differentiating between uh, um, dictatorships or monarchies like kings and queens that literally can go on for centuries as long as that dictator is benevolent and has the interests of the people at heart. Yes. So they're, 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 it could go. Now, it frequently doesn't happen because their descendants get greedy and they screw things up. Right. But unlike a dictatorship, a totalitarian regime invariably, inevitably self-destructs. Now, interestingly, and in, in this kind of confluence, confluences with the technocracy, I didn't realize this, but there has been no totalitarian regimes prior to the 20th century. So it seems like they need a technocratic base or foundation to implement the totalitarianism, which is an absolute alignment, what you just said. Yes. So, okay, so having said that, the self-destruction, here's my concern. And one of the primary reasons I wanted to have you dialogue about this is if, if, if they're going to self-destruct, they've got so many, you know, we, we can go on a tangent. So I, I mean, said so people who are involved in this are known. Well, some of them are known. My guess is that the bigger players are hidden because they've got wealth that makes Gates and Bezos and Musk look like like <laughs> they're not even in the game. They're, they're a rounding error, you know? So the people with the real wealth are probably behind this. And, you know, they've got this totalitarian regime. It's, it's going to self-destruct. And they're, they're going to, they're in over their head. They're, they're, they're playing a game they've never played before. And they don't have any co concept of the unintended consequences that they're going to initiate. And there are many resources I've connected with and people I've listened to who are fairly convinced that something like a World War III is coming. It's not just with this Ukraine, but it could be absolutely unrelated to that, but, but some type of world event that may take out at least one third of the population maybe up to three fourths of the humanity may go. We're talking two to 5 billion people gone within a few years. Yeah. And if that happens, almost everything we're talking about, like just genetic editing of the human genome becomes irrelevant. I mean, we, we essentially go back 300 years, yeah. I would think, yeah. if that happens. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. every supply chain will be decimated you will, <laughs> there, I don't know if the, the internet will still be up. It could be, but you know, you know it depends on the, the amount of decimation. That occurs. Yes. So I'm one, this is, the, this is the, this is the, what I really wanted to talk about. And I'm glad we've had the preface mm. for this, but I'm sure you've considered this and, and I really want to get your perspective on what I just said. Yes. Yeah. This is one possible outcome. No question about it. That uh, the world war three or a world 
war is is going to be is going to be triggered. Um, it's not in the best interest of, for instance, the World Economic Forum mm. to have a world war. Mm. But that doesn't mean it won't happen either. You know, they unintended consequence. They could they could be stepping in it, and uh, you know, so far I think that the Ukraine war is pretty orchestrated and scripted uh, in, mm -hmm. in many ways to the agenda of the World Economic Forum. But it doesn't mean they couldn't lose control and the thing just goes nuts. Mm -hmm. um, if that happens, and I don't I don't know where I put that on the doomsday clock of that happening. I'm I'm not really sure, but it it is definitely a possible outcome. And if it does happen, it will spoil everything for everyone for a very long period of time. It'll take, as, as the Bible says, it'll take seven years to go through the, the, the countryside, bury all the radioactive bones. <laughs> so it'd be very yeah, ugly. I, I'm, uh, not, I'm not convinced it's going to be a nuclear conflagration. Yeah, it may not it could be. be. Yeah. You know, but but they have the technology. I mean, just look what they can do mm. by launching these these pandemics and these bioengineer bioweapons. Yes, bioweapons. I mean, COVID was a joke. I mean, it was essentially not much more than the flu. Yeah, it killed a few million people, maybe. And probably 10 times that in the people who got the jab. Well, maybe a hundred times that will die from those who got the jab. I, I I'm convinced that the vast majority of people who were jabbed are going to be dead at some point is a direct consequence of that injection. Uh, I'm pretty convinced of that. There's some powerful evidence to support that. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't sooner rather than later because they could have actually dropped like flies of uh, ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement reactions this last winter, but they didn't. Uh, but it, it's definitely set the stage. So, you know, I was a Boy Scout, almost made Eagle, but I kind of started too late, so I didn't get there. Um, but the Boy Scouts motto was to be prepared. And I just think it's, you know, for the 10% of us who have not been, who still have our critical thinking skills, it just seems to, in my mind, it's best to prepare for a contingency like this. And that means you are out of every big city because it's going to be gone. Every big city, every big urban, you cannot survive in an urban area. It's got to be a real rural area where we have a big community. And ideally, it's not even in the US. You're out of the US. So, I mean, that's that's my illusion, but feeling at this point that, that things are just, you know, kind of what we said earlier, I think we're both in agreement. It's going to get much worse. And we have no idea. It could be <laughs> yes. monkeypox. It could be hemorrhagic fever virus that they unleash on us. Who knows, but it's going to be bad. And that may be, that may take out half of the population of the world. I don't know, mm. but it, or it's a world war or a combination of the two, but something yeah. is going to hit, kill a, a, a critical amount of people that will just collapse all the, all the, all the uh, supply chains. Yeah. And, and, you know, then you're on your own. You are absolutely on your own. I think, yep. Of, of the possibilities we have in front of us, war is one. Uh, another is a complete financial system failure. That's that's that inevitable. Would, that's almost guaranteed. Yeah, that would. That's right. <laughs> that would drive the central uh, central bank uh, digital currency system. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note: most people don't really get this subtlety. But if 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 our Federal Reserve <clears throat> is allowed to to create its own central bank digital currency, CBDC, um, 
what it means is, is that American citizens for the first time ever will be able to actually have a bank account at the Fed. That's never happened before, purposely. So if, the, if, the, if all of a sudden consumers are going directly to the Fed to, uh, to deal with their digital currencies, that will mean that the Treasury is completely obsolete. It'll push, it, it'll push our Treasury out of the way if they, if they give up that right to coin currency, to mint currency. Which they'll is be totally pushed out of the way. It's unconstitutional. That's right. And secondly, the, the, the Congress will lose complete control of the creation of coin, of defining coin, coinage and weights and measures, et cetera. Congress will be out of it. Uh, the Treasury will be out of it now. They'll be completely obsolete and shoved off to the side. And that means that our, that our entire economic system will be taken over by the Federal Reserve because whoever controls the money controls the economic system, period. Um, this is a consequence that's going to probably come along with, with the CBDC when, it, when they finally happen. And they'll that's all be three to five years. Three to five years. It, that's guaranteed. right. It's slated right now, three to five years. It's, it's probably going to be probably going to happen. Another thing that can happen, and, and again, we're just talking about waves of attack of things that could, mm -hmm. could bring us down and bring about this, this, this great reset that Klaus Schwab is looking for, um, is some type of a cyber attack. And this has been in the news a lot late, lately. Um, a cyber attack uh, could be a false flag operation. It doesn't really matter what it is, whether it is or isn't, but it's some, some big thing like taking down uh, say taking down the power grid in Texas or taking down uh, JP Morgan Chase and all the bank tellers go blank, you know, the, nobody get their money out for a period of a week. Stuff, something like that would again, put the fear of God into everybody. And they go, oh my gosh, do I need to wear a mask now or what? You know, what, what do I do? What do I do? And we'll be back to the fear, panic. Uh, we'll do whatever you say uh, to get safety, et cetera. And it will perpetuate the takeover, the coup that we're looking at. So there's two other possibilities near term that are that are very real. Um, I think I Gates wouldn't... has talked about the cyber cyber attack. So that, that anything that Gates talks about, it, it has a high probability of of happening. Yes, because he he shows his hand before before it's played. Yes, exactly. So you know we've got we've got different scenarios right now, but we know where we know where the, the this tech this group of technocrat actors are going. Um, we understand their mindset, their, their mentality, their philosophy, if you will. I hate to even call it that, but you know, what, what is in their head? There's no passion. There's no compassion. There's no love. There's no mercy. There's no grace. There's nothing like that. And it's completely an inhuman endeavor to capture mankind uh, into a scientific dictatorship, uh, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Yeah, the but, extent they've seen similar things, but not to the extent that's coming. Yes, not not to not to the this massive, extent. the massive. That's right. Billions, billions of people. <clears throat> yes, and not millions, billions. That's right. But but let me let me lay over some of what Desmond says now. I and okay, I've listened good. to him for for some time, as you have, I know too. And I know that. Did you some, like Did you like my interview with him? I did. Absolutely. I know there's some psychiatrists that disagree with Desmond, and I just kind of discard that because, you know, it speaks to me. I understand it, right? It makes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes common sense. 
And I'm sure I, I don't want to insult him by saying it makes common sense, but to, <laughs> to me it does. If I'm you, sure if you him, still have your if you still have your critical thinking skills. That that's right. He's he's got textbook on it. No, it's not simple, he would say, but uh, you know how he came up to this point. But to me, it's pretty simply simple to understand it. One of the things that really impressed me uh, personally when he uh, kind of was first rolling this out, whatever last year sometime, was that. Uh, he was talking about the cultural issues with Germany and with, uh, with Russia, what happened with the genocides there, the Holodomer. And when he brought up the point that, <clears throat> that the, the mass formation side of things always has to create a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. The scapegoat mm -hmm. has to be there to, to blame policy failures on. Mm -hmm. Because they can't do anything that's going to work, of course, because they're out of their mind. So when things go wrong, they have to have a scapegoat because it can't be their fault. It has to be somebody else's fault. So they build, they build a scapegoat. And we looked at the scapegoats of history and we look at the scapegoats today. We've got the, you know, still a pandemic of the vaccinated. We've got all the outliers, the, you know, people like you and I who don't believe the official narrative. Um, but the scapegoat is being rapidly created today, I think, all around the world, like never before in history this is a global thing mm -hmm. and he got real quiet at the end of it and i know he's kind of a you know he's a pensive type of a guy yeah, i understand that right he's a thinker, he just, right? Uh, he just he can just see his mind working to try and get the words <laughs> out right he said and he said the antidote to mass formation psychosis is free speech he used that that phrase free speech mm -hmm. Well, I'm a free speech guy because I founded Citizens for Free Speech in 2018, right? I think yeah, about yeah. this all the time. Mm -hmm. And it caught me kind of off guard a little bit. I said, wait a minute, the, the antidote to mass formation is free speech. How does that work? And he got real kind of pensive and quiet. He says, when the scapegoat is effectively silenced, that is when the killing begins. Yeah. That, that is an absolute right. And I thought, holy crap. <laughs> this is, you know, I see why we need free speech. If we are allowed well, it's to be free speech, but, but it's, an, it's two phases. It's, it's the ability to do it, but to do it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, to it's be two able phases. To connect you could have people. the free speech. It's just like you, it could be sunny out and you could be in a, in a tropical environment. <laughs> but if you're not going out in the sun, you're not getting the benefits. That's right. That's exactly right. So we we desperately need to preserve free speech in the world today. And this is a universal concept. It's not just in America. We Americans mm -hmm. tend to be a little bit egotistical sometimes. Well, we have a constitution, you know, we're really cool. And we have a First Amendment after all, you know, we're really cool. But I have found that free speech is a universal concept. I get emails from people all over the world saying so, saying so, you know, we're we're being denied free speech. They understand what free speech is. It seems to be just an innate thing that people understand. They got a mind, they want to express their mind, and they don't want to be censored or canceled. And um, on a global basis right now, as the propaganda wars heat up and the attacks on the First Amendment heat up, we've got many of them right today, right as we're doing this interview, there's huge attacks on the First Amendment. Oh, my gosh. Um, the intent is obvious because the attack on free speech has came at the same time as the coup d'etat started. It's required. 
and is required it. of these revolutionaries, of these technocrat transhumanist revolutionaries, they must destroy free speech at the same time that they take over the world because they have to control the narrative. So the attacks on free speech right now are absolutely legendary, off the charts, everywhere on the planet. And if, if Matthias is right, and I'm, I feel absolutely certain he is, because I, I can read a history book as easily as anybody, when free speech is effectively silenced, that is specifically when the, the killing of the scapegoat begins. And it's always the scapegoat that's get killed first. There may be other groups that get mixed in with it just because. But the people who are the scapegoat are the ones that will be attacked by the mass formation psychosis crowd. Yeah, well, eventually, if it's a totalitarian regime, it eventually eats its own children. So it will kill yeah. half of its leaders and they will willingly comply because they are hypnotized, yes. hypnotized. Yes. And they'll say, yeah, for the greater good, kill yes. me. Yes. And they'll do it willingly and gladly. Yes. You know, the, <clears throat> I go back to original technocracy from the 1930s. And when they defined themselves in their own magazine, which was called the Technocrat, that's an original name, I'm sure they call it the Technocrat magazine. They defined themselves in 1938 as the science of social engineering. That was what they said about themselves. The technocracy is the science of social engineering. And they talked incessantly in their literature about Pavlov and B.F. Skinner and, you know, how they could control people and, you know, mold people to the, uh, to the economy, to the utopia that they wanted to build. And they've had since 1938, at the very least, to be thinking about how do we develop the science of social engineering to be used against humanity? I don't think we need to even think about it any further. We can feel it today. It's right in our face it, every day. The so-called pseudoscience, I would call it. It's not a science at all, but they call it the science of social engineering. They're using these techniques against the people of the world to manipulate them, to, to hypnotize them, to push them into mass formation psychosis. Somebody at the top knows exactly what they're doing with this. Yeah, that's my and, point. And a lot of it is the tech companies like Google. Yes, I, I, I look at I look at Google as a Skynet of the Terminator series. With yes. They are Skynet. No question. They're yes. probably the worst defender of all the tech, tech technology companies yes. that are accelerating this. I mean, they talk about social engineering. They they they're the champions. They yes. own DeepMind, the most sophisticated uh, right. artificial intelligence company right. on the planet, which has spawned off all these amazing programs that you know yes. can beat world champion go players and chess players like in minutes and yes. uh but they're using it to to for nefarious purposes clearly yes they are it's clear and it's clearly social engineering that that's the bottom line It's clearly social engineering mm -hmm. i'd give a shout out by the way to uh, uh professor emeritus uh from harvard shoshana zuboff for her book the age of surveillance capitalism I think it's probably one of the most important books of our century, but it describes what's happened at Google since about yeah. 2008, 2009, and how Google has transformed the entire nature of surveillance into, a, into creating, creating uh, us as resources 
to fuel their products that they're putting together to sell to the rest of the world. Yeah. It's an she, amazing scholarly book she, that she's produced. Yeah, I've written an article about that book. And I've read it before too, but uh, she d- does a good job of exposing it, but she fails miserably in my view on mm-hmm. recommendations and action items. It's just I would really agree. bad news. And I would agree. Bad, bad news on spades. Well, yeah. I think a better example is uh, Robert Epstein, who is also a professor at Harvard and actually was the last student of B.F. Skinner mm-hmm. and uh, really and understands this space incredibly well. He's actually testified before Congress a few times. I'm sure you know who he is. And I do. You know, he, he is really, I mean, he's, he, he's not as eloquent as Shoshana for sure, but he really knows his stuff and he's, mm. he's a, he's a coder. So he's, you know, he understands what's going on and he's, he's actually compiled the evidence to show what they're doing. So a great guy. I, I love yep. Robert. Yep. But you're right. Google is at the center of it. They're the, they're the, they're the poster child for what's going on in the world today, but they're not alone. They just happen to be the poster child. All right. So I think we've done a good job of covering this. And I think what people would appreciate now is from your perspective of being in this for decades, knowing you've seen it coming for a long time. You've been, when would you start with this with Sutton was in the seventies or eight, yes, eight, it wasn't, it 80s. wasn't uh, actually 1970, late 1978. Okay. Or wow. 70, excuse me, 77. All right. So coming up on 40 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. So you, you're definitely a veteran in this space. So having been involved for so long, you, you've seen it coming. It, it's here. This is the coup d'etat you referenced earlier. This is like the final days. Mm-hmm. You're the big free speech advocate. You've got, you started your, your, your campaign or your organization in 2018. So obviously that's a part of this, but I'm wondering if you could outline now, what your recommendations are for to, and obviously this is just directed towards the 10% because if <laughs> yeah. it ain't going to work otherwise, I know, if, I know. if you can still think and yeah. listen there and yeah. literally I would say a little less than half of my audience is in that 10%. It's, it's, you know, it's like four to five times higher than the normal population, but there's still the majority of people are not. Mm. So, but, but if you're in that 10%, what can they do? Yeah. yeah I, here's, here's one thing we need to buck the narrative. Anytime you feel like you're b- being given a role to play, just refuse to play that role. Well, I don't care what it is, just don't do it. If they say, well, you need to wear a mask because blah, 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 don't wear a mask. Just don't play the role they give you. Uh, secondly, we have to- re- oh, wait, Let's people. stop there because you got a lot of recommendations. So let's, let's break them down. So if it's something that you, that there's consequences for not following the rules. Yeah. Like if I, if I don't wear a mask, I cannot go in and get my blood tested at the, right. at the blood drawing center. So does that mean, you know, do you sacrifice like three minutes of wearing a mask or five minutes for the convenience of getting your blood drawn, you know, in that yes. case, I mean, at what level do you commit to that directive? I know that there's, there's a lot of personal choice here. I don't want to step on anybody's toes mm-hmm. because you get in a situation like that. A loved one's in the hospital. You can't visit them unless you put on a mask or get a shot, whatever. Mm-hmm. You got to make a personal decision on what it's worth to you to do it. Yeah. I personally haven't worn a mask yet. It's cost me. I haven't flown wow. an airplane for a long time. I didn't well, go that's, to a lot that of changed. Thanks, thanks to Leslie Manukian. She filed that lawsuit oh. from Florida. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... I, I absolutely love Leslie, by the way. She's just, she's an unassuming warrior. And, yeah, you know, she, she is. She is. Just, 
It's just who would have thought this small, tiny woman just comes out like a like like a lion. (laughs) Exactly. But she refused to play the role. And, you know, she just said, I'm not going along with this anymore. It's important to keep your mouth open, not shut. And we need to reestablish human connection again. This has been denied us with all the social distancing and lockdowns Mm -hmm. and everything else. Get in touch with people. It hurts, I realize, for a lot of people because relationships have been burned up between children and parents Mm -hmm. and brothers Mm -hmm. and sisters. Get over it. Deal with it. You have to get and reconnected with people again because the future of humanity is in those connections. Let's explore that for a bit because if you, even if it's your relative, perhaps even your spouse or your children or your parents, Yes. That if they are in the, the, the brainwash, the little brainwash 30%, there is nothing you could ever say or do or show them to convince them out of that. They are gone. Yeah. They are literally gone. They, they're, they, they swallowed the blue pill yeah. and they ain't coming out of it. Yeah. So my, that's my, my assessment and understanding. Yes. Uh, and it's just an absolute waste of time. So would you refine that recommendation sure. to connect to the people who are in the 10% or yeah. potentially could be in the other 60% where they're at least willing to talk to you. But if they, if they're, if they're brainwashed, there's nothing you can do. It's too late. It's like, they've got the terminal cancer diagnosis. They're going to be dead in a week. Yes. The most important thing you can do, I think for like family members that just don't go along with what you're saying and they don't want to listen to you and they go, you know, plug their ears, la, 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 la sort of thing. At the very least, you you won't convince them by anything that you say Mm -hmm. or you know, papers you present to them. Well, listen to this video. This will fix you. No. The, the, at the very least, you can you can continue to love them. Right. I were called to do that. There's no That's doubt it. in my mind. 100. You know, percent just, yeah. just just love them and you know for, forget the but rest of it. They're not. But don't try to argue out. with them. Don't argue. <laughs> That's right. Just don't argue with them. That you know, if you if you love them, I mean, if you have to love them, they your children. Is you know, a brother, sister, whatever. Love them anyway, in spite of where they are. But it's also important to get with like-minded people and spend time developing uh, deeper relationships with people. You know, guys, guys have lost the ability to have best friends almost universally across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are better at having best friends, but they've been denied best friends because everything's been broken up. So, you know, for some people, it may mean, you know, look, get, get, in, get embedded in a local church and start going to, you know, these home fellowships or whatever, where people are meeting face-to-face and just what, what talk to them. <laughs> It's, What's your take on the churches? Because there's a fair number of them that capitulate yeah. and surrendered and have actually are brainwashed themselves. Yeah. So what's your percentage? What's your idea of the percentage of the churches that, that are in the 10%? I mean, is it, is it about the same percentage of the population? I would say, I would say it's a, yeah, about the same as the Okay, so 90% of, of the churches are not a good place to go. Well, then uh, 30%, one third. <laughs> yeah, some churches would be the wrong place to go. But the only reason I even bring up church at all, is because people are there, right? And you can go mm-hmm. and actually sit next to a real person yeah. who's not going to pull out the meat hacks, the meat axe and try to kill you on the spot. <laughs> Hopefully at least not. you've got somebody you can talk to and maybe you yeah. could give them a hug or maybe they'll give you a hug if you're lucky. Sure. <laughs> and, you, and you can remember the good old days when, you know, when we used to be able to walk down the street and say to our, you know, hi, neighbor, how you doing? Uh, sort of thing. Um, we have to reconnect, Joe. That's all I'm saying. We have to. No, I get. I agree. And, and my belief is it's going to be not only have to, but it's absolutely essential and required yes. if we're going to survive in the future. Because if you don't have a community, you're gone. You are 100%. You will have to have a community. If you don't, you can have all the, you can be the best prepper in the world without a community. You're going to be, you're going to be up the creek. 
That's right. And you remember about when that. the lights went out in New York City um, several decades ago now, I think probably the lights went out in New York City and everybody around the country thought, uh-oh, that's the end of New York City because there's going to be complete crime. revolution in New York City. People are going to be killing each other because crime is bad or whatever. But when the lights went out, a funny thing happened. All the people at night, they started coming out in the streets because they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't see anything. So they come out. And all of a sudden, for some strange reason, they started to cooperate with each other. They started to love each other and have, you know, crack jokes and, you know, give, give hugs and, hey, what are you going through? And how can I help you? And, and all of a sudden, there was this huge love fest in New York City when the lights went out. And of course, when the lights went back on, it was back to business as usual. You know, somebody got killed, 30 people were watching on the street, this person gets, you know, knifed to death. But it was an amazing experiment, I think, in humanity when there was real catastrophe set in. People all of a sudden, they naturally come out and they try to help each other and they do help each other. All right. So get into community, get out of social isolation, social isolation which is one of the tools they used against us. And yes. actually, one of, probably one of the primary contributing factors for the development of this mass hypnosis. Yes is social isolation. So definitely do that. Uh, and what, any other recommendations and then, and don't capitulate to the narrative like mask. I think, I think better than example than the mask would be the mandated vaxes for whatever reasons, like you're going to lose your job or something. Listen, you can get another job, yeah. but you can't, you can't get another life. I mean, if it kills you, what good was getting the vax? I mean, if you, if you, yeah. you know, you can stand your job for a few more years and get your pension <laughs> and retire. You know, it's it's not worth it. It is hundred percent not worth it. So, so you just have to say no to that. There's just no other option. What whatever it is, because you can, you, you that that is a non-negotiable, a non-negotiable for a hundred percent non-negotiable. Yes, I would I would also borrow a, a concept uh, from from the Bible that says always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within you. That, of course, has a spiritual connotation from the Bible, but mm -hmm. this is an important, a very important thing. When, when, uh, when you're out and about in your world, you should always be ready to meet mentally, to meet with somebody who is searching for answers. You know, mm -hmm. th there are people like that. They're looking for answers. And when you run across somebody that maybe just maybe got the shot, you know, and they have an adverse reaction and they're confused and they're, they're hurt and, uh, you know, they don't know what to do. You may have an opportunity to touch that person is such a positive way to help them. So you need to be ready with answers, not just like, well, hey, give me a call or, you know, whatever, or just say, uh, you know, hey, have a nice life. If you have the answers, you should keep them on the tip of your tongue and in your hand, if there's something written down, keep some stuff in your purse and your wallet, your briefcase, whatever. So if somebody asks a question that brings it up, you have concrete, tangible, something you can give them. And I know you've been doing that. You've been providing that material for people for a very long time, but a good example, I suppose a good example would be from, from your world. If somebody asks, how can I, now that I've, I've taken the shot, I regret that I took it. I'm really sorry. I took it. I'm having all kinds of issues, trouble. What on earth can I do to protect myself now? Well, I know you and other people like you have got some protocols and stuff that, you know, things that people can do and take that will really help their condition and maybe will stave off some of the certain, some of the symptoms and stuff that they're having. Be ready to hand that to somebody. 
You know, if, if, if that's you and you study some of Dr. McCullough's stuff or somebody else, whatever, and you've got some answers in your hand, for Pete's sake, cough them up and give them to people and say, hey, there's hope for you, friend. If there's there is hope for you. Right. Because there's a fair number of people, perhaps even the majority of people who've been jabbed, it could be as high as the majority, but it's close. It's, you know, maybe 50-50, who, who regret ever having gotten it. Yes. So just because it's a jab doesn't mean that they're been they're brainwashed i mean yeah. it's a good good chance that they are but it doesn't mean it so if, they, if they're happy about being jabbed and just yeah. delighted then you just yeah. don't go anywhere but if they're regretting it you know certainly mm-hmm. offering them resources if they're concerned yes. would be a good idea but we do have answers that's the point we have a lot mm-hmm. of answers and a lot of tangible things we can help people with you need to do it be prepared to do it when you have the opportunity for peace sake open your mouth and help them out there's no percentage in just walking away and saying, "Ah, you know, that's your problem, not mine." That's mm-hmm. that's almost cruel. If somebody's asking for a fish, you, you don't give them a rock. You know, you say, "Give them some help for Pete's sake." You know, say, "Here, read this," yeah. or you know, "Go to this website or whatever." You know, here's some stuff. I take this. You know, why don't you? You know, you could do this too, and it might help you. Mm-hmm. At least give them some hope, because right now the 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 other side wants you to have no hope. They want to strip all hope away from you so that you will turn to the government or turn to the technocrats for help. So we need, we need to help people with this whole hope business and, and not to sell hopium, as some people call it, but to give them some tangible help on what they can do right now to, to put up a defense around their own body, around their own mind or whatever it might be. And, and, and maybe you'll never see them again. You know, it might be you never run into them again in the grocery store or whatever. Okay, so fine. If everybody were to take it, listening to this audience, if everybody would take that, this, this attitude and response and say, I will do my part to, to give to anybody who would listen a, a tangible answer and something that can help them, then you just be ready. You're always ready. You may go for a week and you don't give anything to anybody, but that one day comes along, somebody you're, you just run into, conversation starts up, and boom, you know that that was... <laughs> that's a divine appointment for you to pull out that stuff and give it to them yeah. and say, here, maybe this can help you. Yeah. It's, it's a form of speaking out really. And it's ABR. It's, it's always be ready. And that process of connecting personally, one-on-one face-to-face yes. is one of the most powerful strategies we have for per- increasing the number of people who are hypnotized. Yes. And that's speaking out it, it, it doesn't seem like because you're just one person, but if a bunch of people start doing this, this is what's going to take to prevent and stop them from going on these killing rampages, which historically has happened less than 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago. It's yeah. happened twice or actually multiple times, but at least two big times in Germany and yeah. Russia, where tens of tens of million people were slaughtered. So this time it's tens of billions, yeah. if not hundreds of well, there's not tens of billions, tens of billions. There's not even eight billion people. Well, it, it's billions. It's not tens of billions. It's billions. Yes. That, that are the lives that are at stake here. So th- this is important. Really important. It is. And you know, if we if we liken what where we are right now to that that big uh, championship poker game, right? There comes a time at the end of the table when you have a not maybe a good hand, and and you you say I'm all in, and you push all your chips in the middle of the table, right? And if you lose that hand, you're gone from the table, mm-hmm. you've lost everything and you're gone. This is where we are as a world today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we on our side, the non mass formation psychosis side, 
we're all in. Whether anybody else recognizes that as immaterial, but we are all in in this, and this is the most important civilizational existential thing that we'll ever deal with in our lifetime. It really is that important. It's not something we can just say, well, it's just another problem, kind of like, you know, well, we had problem with Jimmy Carter. We had problem with, uh, you know, we had, what's his name, no. Slick Willie, and, uh, you know. No, it's not that kind of problem. This is a bigger existential threat that we're facing right now. It really is. And yeah. we must it's be deadly thing. serious. Yeah. But there's hope, yeah. I will say, and until it's over, it's not over yet. Until it's over, we can make a difference and we need to try. We, we just can't say, well, throw up our hands and you know, say, oh, there's no point trying. I'm going to go home and get drunk. No, I think there's a great <laughs> perspective and suggestion is that you realize that you're all in. You're all yes. in. Yes. If you're not, I mean, you're going to lose it anyway. It's just like, why wouldn't you do that? Because what are the consequences if you don't? You're, you're, it's the same darn thing. You're gone. They're going to take well, you out. Clock, I mean, the clock, likelihood yeah. is beyond. I mean, it's just a few years. I mean, the, the, yes. the clock is ticking. The yes. clock is ticking. Well, you need to understand yeah. that. Klaus Schwab uh, told you by 2030, said with his own oh. lips, you will own nothing and you will be happy. He said, Yeah, well, I don't think, I really do not think we're going to get anywhere close to 2030. This is going to happen long before then. They're trying to make it happen. Yes, they are. It, it, they're, they're accelerating this. I don't know what, but 2030 is a pipe dream. This is going to, this, you know, if it be interesting if it gets to 2030, I don't think it will. I, I think we're going to have decimation well before then. And it's, <clears> it's, it's almost, the, seems to me almost inevitable. Yeah. One of the reasons, by the way, that the World Economic Forum has met specifically with the United Nations to speed up the agenda beyond or closer mm -hmm. uh, on this side of 2030 is because of the mounting resistance around the world to mm -hmm. their agenda. I'm convinced of this. I've been watching this since the beginning. The, you know, we don't have, Americans can't have 500,000 people in the street protesting anything. It doesn't happen here. That's just not our culture, but not Europe. <laughs> in Europe, you, you know, at the drop of a hat, you'll get 100,000 people in the street all screaming and banging pots and pans and hollering yeah, yeah. and carrying signs, and you name it. Yeah. It's like they just wait for this. You know, they got all got their kids at home, make signs and stuff. <laughs> hey, what are we going to do this week? But, you know, they see this in Europe. I know they see these, these massive hordes of people that are saying, you know, essentially like we used to say in the Vietnam War, hell no, we won't go. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. this yeah. has to have an impact on them. I think that's one reason they're trying to accelerate the program right now and, and make it happen faster. To me, yeah. that's just kind of a little bit of a sign of, um, uh, of, of resistance is working. Mm -hmm. And this, to, to me, this ought to tell the resistance, double down, double mm -hmm. down right now on whatever it is you're doing, double down on it, do, do twice as much as you did last week or last month. And continue to put the pressure on it, and maybe, just maybe, it's yeah. Lucky and, and if I could it. share Matthias's re recommendation, is that to be to sh raise your voice, and not necessarily in social media or anything, because you yes. don't want to get banned or anything, but you want to raise it in face to face and people you know personally, yes. people respect you. So that just talking, it just has to be a few people. That's all it is. But that's that right. is that is what's required if we're going to stop this incredible destruction that seems to be coming at us like a freight train. That's right. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. Yeah. We have some hope. We have some trouble. You know, it, it may work out. It may not. But nevertheless, 
We cannot you sit did. down and do nothing. We must do something. Yeah, remember you're all in. That's great advice. That's right. You're all in. If you're not, you got to seriously go to sleep and think about this because you just there's no other sane, rational approach. That's right. Exactly. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to have this discussion with you. It's been great. Oh, man, I, this is great. This is exactly what I was hoping for because we just people need to hear this. They need to hear this. They need to understand the consequences of inaction and what's on the table here. This is these are these are really big stakes. I mean, it is not hyperbole to talk about existential threat to the race. It really isn't. I mean, at least the races we know it. I mean, you could turn it back a few hundred years. You know, I kind of like it the way control. I. I like it the way I know it. <laughs> right yeah, now, I, I like. I just don't think. I, I just don't think we're ever going to go back to that again. No, I just we're not. I, the likelihood is very very remote. Yeah. You know, it could be completely dystopian or it could be kind of a utopian just going back to our ancestors times, you know, but uh, but we're, we're one thing we can be guaranteed of it's going to change it is going to change. And if you, you can participate in helping to change for the better. Exactly. All exactly. Right. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing. And maybe if you could in closing, you could talk about that. Uh, that tour that you're on, it's going to end in Tampa, you're saying, and, and there's going oh, to be yeah. an online uh, event for that. Right, right. And uh, the crimes against humanity tour.com is the website. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not promoting it. I'm just speaking at it. Yeah, all, yeah, yeah. You know, right, speakers. Right. Um, but that's where you can find out details on the conference, what cities where I think we're going to be in Houston, and we're going to be in Minneapolis and Atlantic City, then Dallas, and then back to Tampa, I think after that. Okay, the well, final, it's good, the, good to end in Florida. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the final one in Tampa is going to be live streamed. Um, and that will be available to everybody. And I expect by that time, our message will be so finely tuned and, you know, together it should be the, should be our yeah. coup de grace. What, what's the date for that Tampa, the last Tampa event? June 19th. Okay, June 19th. So this, June, actually, Mateus's interview should be up around, right around that time too. So good. Good. But but yours will be up well before then this interview. So okay. good, yeah, that's good. So it's All gonna right. be it's gonna be an interesting time, and uh, we're just spreading the word. I'm I'm really happy to be able to be out meeting with people face to face. That's something different right now for us. So if, right. if, if we see anybody on the trail, by all means, come up and say hi and say, well, I saw you on uh, on Dr. McCullough's program or whatever. Uh, be great, great to meet you. All right. Well, sounds good. You can go to Crimes Against Humanity. Yeah, if you live in one of those cities and attend the event yourself personally, which would be good to connect in, in line with the principles we're recommending to kind of abort this, develop a community, connect right. with other people. I mean, obviously, people in the middle aren't going to be going to this event because <laughs> this is this is the 10%. Yeah. So, but it's good to form that community. All right, Patrick, thanks for all you're doing. I really appreciate it. And you keep up the good work and uh, we're going to, we're making a difference. My pleasure. I agree. We absolutely are. And I appreciate all the articles and stuff you guys are pushing out on, on technocracy and transhumanism. I just, I've been, you know, eating it up over here at technocracy.news. It's good stuff. Great right, stuff. Well, good to have yeah, you on board. All right. Well, thanks again and uh, continue the good work. Thanks. You too.